This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Comp Effect Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Tams. And today, once again, we are going to talk about all things work comp. Uh, I'm super excited to introduce our guest today, who we started... um, I actually reached out to him a few months ago after I read an article in Risk and Insurance that he wrote, and it was a phenomenal article. And it just took uh, it took a little bit of time to connect and get us on the podcast today. And I'm going to try not to butcher his name, but Stig or Stig, here it is. They call him Figs, Steve Figliolo, who is a senior consultant at Chick Fil A Corporate, is joining us to talk about everything that he does at Chick Fil A. And his work comp experience for the past 15 years is phenomenal. Steve, dude, thanks for coming by today. Todd, thanks for having me. And major kudos that you really you got my last name right on the first try, which is not an easy feat. <laughs> I lump Steve in with figs and then I jumble my words and I sound like a first grader. So I apologize for that. You know, that might be a new thing. That could be the new nickname. So I'm staring at the wall behind you and I, I don't know, is there 20 baseballs? Oh, maybe. There might even be a little bit more than that. Uh, There is a bottom row that you probably can't see. But yeah, I'm an avid baseball fan. Uh, Played in high school and ended up tearing my rotator cuff in college and couldn't pitch again. But uh, I'm still an avid fan of the sport. Still an avid fan. So those baseballs, are they baseballs that you've caught or purchased and had autographed? A little bit. Uh, there's one foul ball in there. There's actually one from the first game that I ever pitched in high school. And some of them, I, I was at the right place, right time to meet some of those players and others, you know, just purchased through, you know, various sites throughout the years. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice case you've got there. People you're watching, if you're not watching <laughs> this on YouTube, he's got quite the setup going on behind him. It looks pretty sharp. No, thank you. But Steve, we didn't come here to talk about baseball as much as I would like to. We came to talk about work comp and help. Um, I don't know if you listen to this, but we get not only insurance agents, uh, but also some businesses that are maybe struggling with work comp claims that they've had in the past um, and some HR practices. So can you just, I don't know, give us a little background and tell us about your work experience and how you got to where you're at today? That's a great question, Todd. I I sometimes pinch myself and wonder how I got to where I am with Chick-fil-A. But it all started, frankly, I was looking for a job after college without much direction as far as what I wanted to do. I was one of those students that went into my university years thinking, okay, I'm going to get a computer science degree. Quickly realized that was not for me. Decided, I like numbers. Maybe I'll get into mathematics. Also quickly realized that was not for me, undeclared everything and said, I'm going to try just maybe I'll be a jack of all trades, try a little bit of this, a little bit of that and and see where it takes me. It got me into the business school where I found a passion for business management and business law. So I ended up graduating from Stetson University with a business management major and a focus in business law. 
And I think like many students back in the early 2000s, I figured, well, I'll just go to law school because I have no idea what else I want to do with my life. And being a lawyer seems like a really cool gig. I, I've seen enough law and order to where I'm pretty sure I know what I'm in for. And then I realized I had about six bucks to my name and thought maybe getting into more debt wasn't the smartest move to make at that time. And I had a good friend whose dad was in the insurance industry and he and I actually had a long talk and he encouraged me to apply to become an adjuster. And I, I mean, I was sold. I'm like, Hey, that sounds like a fantastic career. Uh, but what exactly is a claim and what am I adjusting? And so I was fortunate enough to get hired on at, with a large TPA at a college in their, um, they called an industry advancement program back then. And it was almost like a, a claims college. It was a crash course into all things claims, uh, which is great, but it's about two weeks of theory. And uh, as you may know, the claim world isn't black and white. And once you start dealing oh, yeah. with actual cases and people, you realize there's a lot of emotions behind it as well. And so I started as a workers' comp claims examiner and thinking, hey, this is this is great. I'm getting a steady paycheck and maybe I'll do this for a year or two and figure out what else I want to do. I mean, here we are 16 years later and I'm still involved in, in workers' comp in some capacity. So it's an interesting industry because I don't know many people that really have ever directly said, I want to be involved in workers' comp. And so I think I'm one of the majority that sort of fell into this career path. You know, most people that I talk to, uh, work comp is a, you know, each a four letter word. And <laughs> it's interesting that you bring this story up because my prior career, uh, similar to you, I was in college, didn't really know what I want to do, but it wasn't working out. Uh, ended up doing fast food at, uh, Arby's restaurants and, uh, made some money. And then started having a family, found out, you know, I, I need to do something else that's maybe conducive to what I'm looking for for our family and got in the insurance gig. And like you, I, I didn't set out to be a work comp nerd. And I'm not calling you a nerd. I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, but, as you know, of all the paths that, that you can take an in insurance from, you know, like you said, claims adjusting, uh, there's management, there's all sorts of different types of insurance, not only just work comp. I love this line of business. Um, and I think that and one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you today is historically from the purchase or sale of workers' compensation insurance to the workers' compensation audit to how claims are handled, I think has been not very treat, not treated very well. And there's this new mentality of, hey, let's go back and really focus on workers' compensation and maybe let's create some better claim experiences, make sure people are getting taken care of and really dig in. And not only can that be a retention tool for a business, uh, it's also the right thing to do, take care of an employee when they get hurt. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it, that's one of the first things that really drew me into Chick-fil-A was the people before me really set our true north when it comes to our claims philosophy, which frankly is very basic. We want to pay the claims that are owed and we want to defend the claims that aren't. So it's refreshing to look at it from that holistic approach uh, 
you know, advocacy is probably the big buzzword in the industry right now, claim advocacy, but we just view it as defending our reputation. And if we owe something, then we want to step up and we want to pay for it. And we want our team members to have a pleasant experience. To your point, workers' comp has been the redheaded stepchild of insurance for years. And and I apologize to any redheaded stepchildren (laughs) out there right now. Nope, totally agree. You know, and when I look at my my casualty book of business, uh, workers' comp is 70% of it. So why would I not focus my time and attention on something that makes up a majority of my loss pick? 100% agree. I mean, so in the insurance world, even on most of the accounts that we work with, there's a good chance on most companies, workers' compensation represents 40 to 50% of the premium on any given time. Um, and if it's run the wrong way, it's going to be more than that very soon. And then we're going to run into employee retention issues, or we might run into litigation, we might run into increased pricing on employment practices policies. So setting the stage and doing the right thing up front, uh, I think is, is key. And I like your uh, I like your recipe for success there. Pay what's owed, defend what's not. It's a very simple, very simple uh, true north that you guys have because it's if you owe it, take care of the people. Yeah, I mean, 100% that's been our philosophy. And like, like many things, it's easier said than done in the real world because how do you really know what's owed, especially in a no-fault system like workers' comp? And I could sit here and argue with you that there's still merit. You can still investigate a claim and, and do a little bit of a deeper dive into, you know, those things that, that give you a red flag, you know, that, you know, when we were adjusting, we always would say we trust our instincts, that adjuster's gut. And I think that's part of the human component and the human experience about workers comp, because it's not just about that injured worker, but it's also about the adjuster on the other end because they're not robots. It's not a chat bot that they're communicating with. These are real people as well, dealing with their own personal issues. Maybe that carries over into the office one day and and someone could be just having a bad day. And that carries over into that experience that they take to those injured workers as well. Agreed. So let's keep going on here because you've got a pretty unique Uh, work history. So you get a job as a work comp claims examiner for a large TPA. And then what happens? And then I quit. I decided (laughs) to pursue, (laughs) I decided to pursue an opportunity that allowed me to work into the field as an investigator. And at the time, you know, frankly, I love my job as an adjuster. I thought it was great, but I had this opportunity to do field work which was something that I knew I would never get when I was sitting on a desk. And I understood the fundamentals behind it. I understood what it was, what it meant to conduct surveillance, to take statements out in the field, maybe do some accident reconstruction. But this was a group that had some deep connections to uh, really the the state of um, the fraud division in the state of Florida. And I knew that this was an opportunity to learn from some incredibly smart and incredibly successful people. So I took it. Opportunities like that don't really come knocking every single day. And I kind of ran the gambit, did just about any, it was almost like my college experience where I undeclared everything to figure out what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I was chasing cars and surveillance. We were doing background checks. Uh, Social media certainly wasn't what it is today back then. 
it, it was, I would say, faith, well, MySpace actually was the number one website people would have been drawn oh to gosh, back then. That takes you back, yeah, doesn't it? I know, that's dating me a little bit. But <laughs> come a long way since the MySpace. Yeah, page. yeah. <laughs> what was that? Napster too? I mean, I think MySpace, Napster. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Facebook was still restricted to college students back then. So you're talking, I'm trying to put together a timeline here because Facebook reminds me when I got Facebook and it was 2009, I think, when, yeah. I, when I joined the movement. But yeah, you're talking so MySpace was probably a decade before that. Yeah, I mean, it was the early 2000s. It, I mean, 4G, 5, you know, forget 5G, 4G wasn't a thing. I, I don't even know if we had 3G. I, I know I had a flip phone back then, so at least cell phones were around, but... It was different. You had to go to the post office and map out areas if you weren't familiar with a certain location because Google Maps didn't exist. Hold on. Why would you go to the post office? Oh, because they have maps of everywhere. So you can see which streets run parallel if someone's running or if you lose them in traffic, you can shoot over and maybe catch them when they come out the other way. The post office was our best resource to try to find maps and routes. That My mind just like blowing out the back <laughs> of my head right now because... I would never have thought I would go to the post office for maps. Yeah, not many people did. I, I, I honestly couldn't even tell you if they still offer that service today. But I don't know. I haven't been in a post office in years. Yeah, neither have I. <laughs> they come to me now. We just put it in the right? box and then they pick up the mail. Oh, and take fantastic. It away. <laughs> All right. So I'm sorry. I interrupted. Keep going on. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I had an opportunity to get into the, the sales and marketing side with this investigative company. And that was probably one of the best lessons I've ever learned in dealing with people and all different personality types, uh, certainly outside of conducting surveillance and pretexting and being someone else. But it, it really gave me an opportunity to connect with, with other insurance and what I thought would have been like-minded examiners. But I think everyone had a different expectation when it came to surveillance and, and um, investigations. I don't know how much those expectations always aligned with the reality because if I tell you, Todd, you know, I'm looking for, you know, a white male who's living in Atlanta, Georgia, who's somewhere in the mid twenties. I think anyone can find a white male in Atlanta in their mid twenties, but how do you find your specific person? And you learn very quickly that the investigator is only as good as the information that they're given. Mm-hmm. And sometimes adjusters just don't have the time. I mean, I know we call them claims adjusters, claims examiners, but in reality, you're a firefighter. I think every adjuster will tell you their entire job is putting out fires day in, day out. And so sometimes you have to go with your gut. And again, now, thankfully, with social media, people volunteer information and photos all the time. And many employers can easily pull up a photograph to give to the adjuster or to an investigator. But you know, 15 years ago, that, that was not always the case. Well, no, putting cameras on phones has changed the way that we do <laughs> anything anymore, right? Oh, not even just phones, red light cameras. I mean, entering a store, it doesn't matter where you're at. I, I think we're probably filmed what feels like a hundred times a day. Yep. Well, and I mean, to your point, we've got cameras all around our house that detect movement, cameras around my office. I, we're not safe anywhere from a camera. No, it's funny. You mentioned that. I just got a notification that, uh, one of the, the uh, brown delivery services dropped off a package at my front door that I ordered from a website. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I've got three teenage daughters and we put the cameras in and not, not necessarily to, to track them. It was more for just security around the house and things like that. But it became very easy to tell if they were misrepresenting what time they came home the night before. <laughs> Cause we had cameras that would tell us the truth. Yeah. Right. And all it does, I, I'm a big fan of cameras or whether it's inside our restaurants or not, because it just keeps people honest. Yep. And you can definitively prove, okay, this is what, what happened. Because you and I can both witness an event and have two very different recounts of, of what actually occurred. 100%. You know, I think Malcolm Gladwell did a book like that. I think in the, the blink of an eye or the, something like that. And he just talks about how two different sets of people can see the same thing. And you get this biased perception in your background that changes the way you're going to handle that event. And sometimes bad things happen because of that. But uh, to your point, cameras everywhere. It's going to reduce liability. It's going to tell you the truth and you can see what's going on. Which if you're, that's a great point. If you're a business that doesn't have cameras, buy some, put some in your shop. Oh, absolutely. You want to find out if the work comp claim actually happened. You want to find out if the guest actually fell on your property, put cameras up and you'll know for a fact. You want to see what's going on. You have it right there. Cameras don't lie. I probably have that conversation more often than not with our operators and I love our operators. They're fantastic when it comes to selling chicken, not so great when it comes to insurance and workers comp. And I would say the number one thing I get a phone call about is, well, why do we owe this workers comp claim? We weren't negligent. We didn't do anything wrong. And I have to stop and remember, yes, this person may have been an operator for 20 years, but they don't understand comp. So then I have to explain how it's a no fault system. And basically the burden is on us and them to prove that something didn't happen. How do you prove something didn't occur? Put a camera out there. That's the easiest, simplest way that you can definitively prove. Yeah. At 4 PM, Steve did not slip and fall. We can see him right here. Yeah. You're hundred percent accurate. hundred percent. Or it also prevents those Monday morning, like, hey, this happened Friday. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, nobody saw when they were leaving the uh, leaving work on Friday, and it's actually from a sports injury over the weekend or something, you know? All right. So I, I kind of, I, I like how you do fraud. Um, I'm always fascinated by all the fraud stories. We've had a couple of fraud investigators on here. And uh, just the way that that's evolved over time from the big, you know, the big, VCR cameras that you put on your shoulder <laughs> to the little phone cameras now and the social media. Um, w- walk us through what, uh, how long you were there and what you did after that. Yeah. So I was with the, the investigative company for, I think it was about four years and I had an opportunity to work very closely with the, the former head of the division of insurance fraud in the state of Florida and he, he really gave me the, the ins and outs, the one-on-one and how to make a successful fraud case. And his, his point was always, you have to make it as easy as possible for these officers to actually pick up that case. And you know, back then it was physical binders. And he'd say, tab everything that's important, keep it in chronological order, make it so anyone who doesn't understand insurance can pick this up and realize, yeah, this is wrong. Because otherwise, again, they're human. I think there's always that that path of least resistance where if they're looking at two different things, one's super complex, one's been laid out very easily and tells a very succinct story, nine times out of 10, that's the one that's going to get picked up first and reviewed. 
Oh, agree. Agree. And, yeah, and every case is different. And let's be honest, when, when it comes to the DA's office, I don't think insurance fraud ranks as far as, uh, you know, the big sexy case that's going to get them promoted to the next level. So you really have to, I don't want to say you have to pick and choose, but you have to have that that purpose when it comes to putting your case together and show them that this is really impactful. These are the people that are being impacted. Here's why we believe this person misrepresented themselves in their claim. So I'm assuming that's a pretty tough challenge anyway. I mean, if there's one thing I've learned from watching uh, uh, law shows on TV, uh, lawyers, especially in government, don't like to lose. They're not going to take on something they have no chance of winning. If it's more work than what it's worth, they're not going to do it. And to your point, most, most people out there don't like businesses. I mean, if you're an injured worker and you can't paint that case together like it's legit fraud and they think, hey, the it's the big bad company out to get the injured worker, they're not going to take it on. Oh, yeah. Does that hit home fairly close? 100%. And we deal with that, I can't say all the time at Chick-fil-A, but we certainly deal with it. And, you know, we have our share of cases that that we question, whether it's on a guest or on a team member. And it comes down to facts and evidence as well. How do you build it? and, And what are you actually looking at? And it's interesting with, with a company like ours because we, we typically have a lot of goodwill in the community. You know, it's not uncommon for me to get a call from, you know, a team member or a guest and say, you know, something happened. I'm not pursuing a claim. I just want to make someone aware so we can make changes so no one else gets hurt in the future. And that that's sort of evolved over the years in the fact that Chick-fil-A as a brand has been very successful. And sometimes people would think of us as, oh, yeah, you're the, you're the local company that supports my kid's soccer team. And, and you guys support, you know, this, this event that we're putting on for the schools and we love you. And sometimes now it's, yeah, we love you, but I want free Chick-fil-A for the rest of my life because, you know, I, my fries were cold. Oh, I laugh because that's <laughs> there's so many things that are true with that, right? Everybody's like, we're getting down the GL route. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) No, not at all. All right. So now here, so after, after fraud investigation, Mm -hmm. I think you went back to Sedgwick. Is that right? I did. I went back to Sedgwick. And at that point I had moved up to the Atlanta area and uh, I I went back to a claims desk, went back to, to what I knew and quickly got promoted from there out and became a claims supervisor, had my own team. uh, And that was, just a very different experience from everything else I had done because all of a sudden I'm responsible for everyone else's performance. And sometimes that can be a challenge in and of itself because yeah, maybe I could just take the reins and do something for my adjuster, but what's the lesson that they're going to learn here? And am I setting them up for success? And, and no, if I, I think any parent will tell you, if you do everything for your child, they're never ever going to learn that lesson. And same rules applied as the supervisor. And then from there, I I, I had this wonderful opportunity to get into program management. And it was still with the same uh, large TPA. And I kind of, you know, obviously I knew what, what program management was. I didn't know all the details surrounding it. But I interviewed and I, I frankly did not think I was anything that 
blew anyone away. I knew that this was a position where there was going to be a lot of applicants for. And I kind of walked away thinking, you know, I was honest in the, in the interview. I'm sure they're going to find someone way more qualified than I am. Here I am. I just basically, you know, came from a claims background. You know, I don't, I don't have an MBA, so I'm sure there's someone else more qualified who's going to get this job. Well, you know, a couple of months go by and I, I get a random phone call saying, Hey, you know, uh, we do remember you from the interview process and we actually, the client wants to meet you and they're here in Atlanta. Okay, great. They're like, can you get down here by two in the afternoon? Now, Todd, I don't know if you know anything about Atlanta traffic, but where I had to go was about 50 miles away. And that could take you anywhere from an hour to three hours in Atlanta traffic. Yep. So I, I said, sure. Uh, I Send the helicopter. i may or may not have broken some uh state speeding laws you know the posted speed limit to get down there but i i threw on a suit made it down in time and it just turned out that the client was chick-fil-a and uh, i must have left an impression with everyone because they offered me the program management job uh, for chick-fil-a and i could not have been any more happy i had done that for i think about two years And then there was an opportunity to come in-house with Chick-fil-A and run their workers' comp program, Uh, which, which of course, uh, I was like, absolutely. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, but if I don't get this job, how do I set it up to where they don't kick me off the account? Because I absolutely love the people that I was working with at Chick-fil-A. So it was that balancing act of how do I keep my current job if I don't get this job that I actively want and I'm, I'm looking for with my client. Uh, thankfully, it didn't come to that and, and Chick-fil-A did bring me on board. And so how many years ago was that? Uh, that would have been four years ago. Okay. So you've been with Chick-fil-A four years now. That is a very long-winded way to say yes. I've been in Chick-fil-A right. so, for four years. So here, here's the thing for the people out there listening. You have a foundation that is rare, uh, not only in terms of processing work comp claims at a basic level, also investigating workers' compensation claims, and then the last section of your career, managing those, managing people who, who deal directly with the workers' compensation claims. And so this is the exciting thing for me where we can kind of dig into the weeds because Chick-fil-A is one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. Um, I've been in the restaurant industry. You're still in the restaurant industry. They are fraught with a million ways to get hurt. Uh, not only for the people that work there, you have all sorts of different ages from young kids, 16 to, uh, probably elderly. I don't want to say elderly, but people in their sixties. Um, I call them the second career people, the second career people. There you go. Um, so lifting capabilities, knowledge, uh, what they wear for clothes, shoes. I mean, in a restaurant, you've got knives, you've got fryers, uh, ovens. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking back to my restaurant days. There's a million ways to get hurt in a restaurant. Cuts, burns, slip and falls, which are nasty, especially if you're carrying something and end up with a knee or shoulder injury. Um, so I, I'm excited to talk to you today because what do you do? You go into Chick-fil-A, you want to make an impact. You've got all these claims. What's day one look like? <laughs> I think day one was probably spent mostly in our cafeteria sampling all the foods to make sure that they were okay. Is it, is it unlimited chicken nuggets and milkshakes? <laughs> Actually, yes. At our support center here in Atlanta, uh, for our guests and for our workers, it's 
basically all you can eat and the, the Cathy family is very gracious in providing that for us day in, day out. That's awesome. But outside of the cafeteria, yeah, it's interesting because my my prior role really gave me direct insight into the, the types of claims and what we were seeing. And, and Todd, to your point, I don't think this is going to blow anyone's mind when I say that cuts and burns are the number one cause of our workers' comp claims. Thankfully, they're traditionally less severe claims, but the frequency is add up. And I'm, I'm also of the belief that the best claim is the claim that never exists. So I actually work pretty closely with our risk control team and our safety team to prevent these injuries from occurring, which is somewhat counterintuitive because eventually I will put myself out of a job if I'm doing this correctly. But that's okay. I, fig- I figure there's something else I can focus on when, when we have a day where there's no workers' comp claims filed. I can't imagine that. I don't even know what that day would look like. Well, right now the day is typically Sundays, but outside of that, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, let's walk through that. Cuts and burns, number one cause of injury there. Um, And and I mean, I think, so we can explain this to people that are out there. Lunch hour, restaurants are never overstaffed. I mean, you have a certain number of bodies to do a certain number of job and there's not people just standing around. And nine times out of 10, especially today, you're probably running lean. Mm-hmm. So when the, if someone's using a knife and a cut occurs that requires a trip to the urgent care clinic, you're down a person at a key hour. You may be down a person for a couple days and now your business is behind the, behind the eight ball. So you're short staffed. You can't deliver the service that you want. You may not be able to deliver the service that you want for the next couple days. You've got a manager that probably needs to file some incident report or something of that nature, which takes time. So we're not only dealing with the workers' compensation component of a cut or burn, we're also dealing with the additional costs that occur in the business because this thing happened. Yeah, you hit it on the head correctly, Todd. And that's usually how I explain those scenarios to our operators or frankly, even just a manager at a restaurant or even team members who say it's too time consuming to put on the cut resistant glove. And I said, okay, well, let's walk through that scenario. It it takes, let's say 10 seconds to put on that cut resistant glove. I understand that it's the lunch rush. I understand that you're busy, but what happens when you do cut your hand? And we walk through, well, now you need to leave your station, go get medical care, find someone to cover your station. You're already running lean as it is. That person's out. And so what is that 10 seconds really worth? And if you're a team member and let's say you don't know where to go. So you're thinking, well, I'm just going to go to the emergency room and this looks like I may need stitches. And that's great. The emergency room can certainly patch you up. But what happens when they have someone who's a real trauma patient that comes in? Uh, Emergency rooms don't take you based on the time you arrive. They take you based on the severity of the injury. Mm -hmm. So it's plausible that that injured worker could be sitting there five hours, depending on what's going on around them, and which is something that's beyond their control. So again, I asked them, how much is that 10 seconds really worth to you? And you can usually see that aha moment in their eyes, you know, whether you're doing this virtually or in person of, I see what you're saying. And that usually clicks with the managers too. Once they realize oh, if this person's out of the store, who is going to fill in for them? And now what do we do? Because if we move Johnny to cover for Sally, then we need Susie to cover in for Johnny. And it's, it's that whole trickle-down effect. Absolutely. 
Well, I just, to your point too, I think even, you know, if it's a, a person under the age of 18 that got hurt at work, you're probably not only dealing with them, but you're also dealing with their parents who are pretty not, I'm guessing they're not very happy that their kid got injured, especially I, if they're not wearing gloves that, I mean, the safety equipment's there, they're not wearing it. Right. Yeah. I don't think I've ever come across a parent who was happy that their child was injured at work. No. <laughs> And yeah, and, and that's uh, that's a completely different ball of wax too. And, and rightfully so, parents are concerned, and I certainly understand that, and I empathize with them. And and look, if a parent wants their child to go to the emergency room because they believe that's in the best interest of their child, I'm not going to fight them on it. But we may give that injured worker and their parent an opportunity to have their injury triage at least telephonically by a nurse who can explain it with a little bit more pedigree than, you know, just some risk manager sitting in an office that, okay, you know, the cuts sounds like it's this deep and, and this wide. So you can actually go to this urgent care where there's no weight and your, your kid will get patched up or you can sit in the emergency room, which is sort of a wild card right now. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, I'm a huge fan of nurse triage and just, just call it in and let them handle it. They'll make a determination where you should go and what you should do. And I think ultimately that's one of the lowest cost and quickest ways for people to get medical care when they need it. Oh, absolutely. Outside of non you know, if it's a right, emergency, yeah. yes. Well, burns. Yeah. Nurse Todd, care. you're investing in your people. If you're an employer, that's how I look at our nurse triage line. I don't look at it as, is really a cost or an expense. I looked at as investing in everyone's time and getting them that proper care. That's a huge component of our program. Uh, we implemented nurse triage maybe three, four years ago, and I, I would never not have that on my program. Agreed. All right. So for those people who have not listened to our episode before, maybe this is the first one, Let's just dig in real quick to nurse triage. You're running a Chick-fil-A restaurant. Somebody gets hurt. They get that cut. Who in that restaurant's qualified to make a decision, whether that's urgent care or self-care? No one. Absolutely no one. And that's the way it works in generally any business that's out there. So the quickest way to remove liability and get this person the care they need at the lowest cost is not to maybe immediately rush them to the ER and pay the $1,500 bill. It's to call nurse triage and let nurse triage take care of it. That's why I'm such an advocate for nurse triage. Remove the liability from your company because the last thing you want to do is say, oh, that's fine. You don't need anything. And it turns out you really do. Or you waste money by running to the emergency room when it either could have been urgent care or self-care. I've been preaching that for months now. I completely agree. And I hope that everyone out there who's listening feels the same way. And if there are anyone who's on the fence, I really hope that we've just convinced them. So it's interesting. So for, for Chick-fil-A to go to nurse triage four years ago, that's about the time that you came on board. Mm -hmm. What were they doing before? We had a, a very bureaucratic system for reporting claims. It was always the team member would find a manager. Maybe that manager was authorized to report the claim. And if they weren't, then they'd have to find the owner operator to then call it in. Or I think we were still using faxes back then to fax that information over to Sedgwick. Now, in every state where it's, it's allowed, we would have panels in the restaurant. So then the injured worker could at least see, okay, I can go to this location nearby who accepts workers comp. 
But nine times out of 10, they were going to the emergency room because that's typically the first thing people think of when they get injured. So what, this is, this is interesting to me. What have, can you share what your results have been in the last four years by changing that model from the very bureaucratic way of emergency room <laughs> to nurse triage? Yeah. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the story about kind of how we got there. You know, we always encourage managers to report everything because again, going back to that analytics piece, you know, we hire a lot of 16 year olds. There's no shock. They bounce back rather quickly. You know, anyone out there listening who has a teenager, the moment you tell a teenager to do something, they will tell you that you're wrong and they're the smartest person out there. So now for, for us, for our purposes, to really get behind the behavior of it, we wanted to track everything because changing behavior is what really drives change into the organization. And we were looking at that process and realized it was just such a bottleneck trying to track down the right manager to file the claim. And we would always encourage people, hey, if it's something severe, uh, you know, if someone's bleeding all over the floor from a bad cut, go for care first. We'll worry about the insurance and the billing on the back end. You know, that we really do want our team members' care and condition to be our first priority. And once we recognized that bottleneck, we went to our third-party administrator and we were trying, you know, coming up with solutions. And they were saying, okay, well, Let's, t- let's discuss a nurse triage line, but for this to really be effective, we're going to have to change the way you report claims. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm listening, but how so? I mean, yeah, I know we should probably move to an online platform, but that's not going to save me any time. And then we had the conversation surrounding self-reporting claims for team members. And I think many employers like myself take some pause and think there's no way I'm letting people report their own claims. We're just going to be flooded with fraud claims. I've seen it before in my past life. This is not going to work out. But then when you really stopped and looked at the numbers and you looked at the amount of claims that were coming in and how many that we had flagged for you know potential misrepresentation, I realized what a low number it was. And then realized, well, you know what? It almost doesn't matter if the team members report these claims directly to our to our TPA or not, because the job of the adjuster is to really investigate and to figure out what's compensable and not compensable. And so really that burden should not be on any of our operators or, or anyone in the restaurant, because to my knowledge, we're not hiring licensed examiners at the restaurant. We're hiring people to cook and sell chicken. So let's let them focus on that. And that's how we came around to the nurse triage and and really incorporated allowing team members to self-report and and just allow them to have quicker access to the care that they needed. And I'll be honest, I don't have these numbers in front of me, but it's been a downward trend as far as emergency room visits and those initial medical spend to where we are today. And, And of course, this last year, a huge spike in telemedicine just with yeah. COVID and, and everything that was going on. And it's interesting to see where that that's going to take us. But I'm again, huge advocate of the nurse triage line because it just gets people that appropriate level of care that they need that they didn't know was even available. I, I love that you have that data. I mean, we talk about this, we say it, we hear, we hear time and time again, that nurse triage will reduce claims by 47%. I don't know how many employees you have in the Chick-fil-A franchise, but I'm sure it's thousands and thousands. 
uh, the fact that you're seeing a downward trend in claims because of implementing that, uh, that's pretty cool. So kudos to you guys. One yeah, of my questions you. I wanted to ask you is how have you been able to influence work comp claims? Sounds like implementing nurse triage influenced <laughs> work comp claims. Yeah, that's definitely one of it. And, you know, I always looked at it as, you know, there has to be a better way to do workers comp than what historically has been done before us. And a lot of that, again, is our claims advocacy model. And especially for us, I want to get them to the best provider. I don't, I don't necessarily want to send them to the cheapest provider if that level of care is not there. And for the number, for the analytics people, for the numbers, the Billy Beans out there, throw a baseball reference in, it's a trickle down effect, right? So if I'm paying for quality care, but they only go for four visits, let's say $200 a visit, well, that's still better than if I'm sending someone to lower quality and maybe I'm paying $80 a visit, but I'm paying that for 25 visits. What's that rate of return? You know, are you really saving money? And then not only the individual appointments, how much are you paying out and continued TTD, you know, or indemnity benefits because that person is not cleared to return for work? God, you all right? So you're 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 speaking the gospel right now, because <laughs> um, this is huge. Uh, and I think months ago when Claire uh, Musselman was on the podcast, we talked about this and. We talked about how carriers approach claims and there's certain carriers out there that want to drive the lowest cost at the, uh, whatever that, whatever that facility is that are, or provider that's going to charge the lowest cost. That's where they want to direct care. And at the same time, if you're a business that wants to take care of your employees, sending them to the Walmart of medicine is probably not the best place to go. Maybe you want to find the target or, you know, whatever higher level that is, um, and, and help them get the care they need. And so they feel good about the care that they're getting. Cause I think we all know if we don't like the care that we're getting and we don't think it's appropriate, we're going to voice our concerns. We're going to hire an attorney. And now that claim is going to spiral out of control and cost probably three times as much. Oh, hundred percent. And I think people lose focus in, in the fact that again, human beings are being injured and look, the official disability guidelines are great. They're a fantastic reference guide. They're a great resource, but that's not gospel. Not everyone's going to fit into that box. So you have to think creatively and think differently. And you can have two back injuries for two different employees. You're never going to have the exact same outcome. So why don't we treat it like we should have the same outcome? Are you guys getting granular into any metrics for like, let's say you do have that large claim. Um, like let's say it's a back injury. Um, are you finding that no matter maybe what part of the country that there's certain, you know, like Walmart has blue distinction centers as an example. And so if you need, um, where I live in Iowa, they have blue distinction centers anyway. So if you need a knee surgery, they have found a certain subset of providers does a better job with knee surgery than others. And so if you want it compensated, you must go there. And it's not compensated if you go outside of that because they find that not only do the costs are higher, but the outcomes are not as good as if you were to go yeah. to a distinction center. Yeah. So I like to get as granular as I possibly can. And, you know, I don't want to just list maybe, you know, a specific orthopedic center. I want to list a specific doctor who has those proven results. And frankly, I follow doctors more than I follow practices 
because to me, again, it, it's still that individual who's performing that surgery. It's not the practice. So, you know, there are some facilities where you know that there are great doctors with proven results. And that's what I, that's where we want to get. We want to get down to that specific provider. So how, how do you replicate that? I mean, how big is your team and how do you replicate that through all your claim <laughs> adjusters inside of Chick-fil-A and at Sedgwick? Yeah. Well, inside of Chick-fil-A, you're, you're basically looking at the team. Uh, you know, it's me. It's and about, you. <laughs> when, when it comes to comp, it's just me. And, but I have to say, you know, it's a fantastic, fantastic partnership with our, our TPA and our adjusters and our nurse teams. And a lot of it is, I, I don't want to say having the adjusters buy in because I don't feel like it's really anything that we have to sell. It's just telling them this is our, our mission. This is who we are. And they believe it. And we have a great team of nurses and a lot, people a lot smarter than me over there who can dive into and, and get those reviews and look for those four or five star providers. And again, in states where it's applicable, that's where we're encouraging people to go to. Obviously, every state's different, so we can't direct care everywhere. But those where we can have an influence, then we certainly want to. Sounds like if I'm going to have a claim, I should go to work for Chick-fil-A and have a claim there. <laughs> I was like, right, that, not only am I going to get nurse triage, but I'm also going to get treated right along the way. And I love that. I, I To give you a compliment, um, I like kind of how you approach Sedgwick said, this is how we expect claims to be handled. This is the level of care that we want to get people. It's not an adversarial relationship. These are people that work for you and you want to do the right thing to take care of them, provided there's no fraud going on. So pay the claims mm-hmm. where they're due and investigate the ones that they're not. Yeah. And and honestly, we view our examiners as an extension of Chick-fil-A because they're the first responders. They are the first point of contact for our team members when they're hurt. And and we expect the adjusters to treat everyone with the same honor, dignity and respect that our team members would treat a guest when they come into our restaurant. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times, uh, at least I tried to go out of the way to thank the adjusters for what may seem like a mundane task by getting someone into an ortho by Friday instead of waiting until the following week, because that makes a big difference in that person's life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think adjusters ever hear the words, thank you enough. Steve, if you want to see you're, you're right. I don't think adjusters, I don't think good adjusters hear the word. Thank you enough. Um, I'm sure the bad ones hear a lot of <laughs> other, other expletives. Um, but if you want to see companies out there that are doing it the wrong way, all you got to do is go on a work comp forum. Uh, delayed care, adjusters not calling them back. And it blows my mind that this still happens in 2021, especially when care is mandated at a state level. I mean, a minimum level of care, and you can always exceed that, uh, just blows my mind. So we're running out of time here. But one of the things I want to talk to you about is return to work programs. How, how does that work at Chick-fil-A with burns and cuts and people who may not be able to use their hand? Do you have a formal yeah. strategy or you're bringing people back? What does that look like? So, so this is where I, I, maybe we have an, an opportunity for improvement, but we don't have a formalized return to work program. Uh, we do evaluate everything on a case by case basis. And a lot of times it's working with that operator to, to see what their location is like, because not every Chick-fil-A is the same. We have some that are drive through only locations. We have some that are giant freestanding units. We have some mall locations. But again, it depends on that injury. So for example, if I have someone with an ankle injury and they're in an air cast, they're in that walking boot, we can't really give them a, a reputable slip resistant 
soul for that cast. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to bring them back into a restaurant that's prone to have grease, prone to have water, prone to have, you know, lettuce or tomato potentially wind up on the floor and have that person slip and fall and, and have a worse accident. So at that point, we'd rather them not show up to work, but we still encourage our team and especially the operators to reach out to them and just ask them how they're doing. How's their day yep. going? They're, they're still part of that Chick-fil-A family and you don't ever want an injured worker to feel neglected or that, hey, you know what? I got hurt at work and my employer doesn't care about me anymore. So to answer your original question, Todd, it, it really does depend on that location to see whether or not we can bring someone back in a capacity that makes sense and that still keeps them safe and still keeps others around them safe as well. Okay. That's good to know. I was curious on, I mean, my sentiment was exactly like yours. It's really hard to bring somebody back and a business that's fraught with risk anyway. And to your point, the last thing you need is somebody to slip and fall and injure themselves worse because they're trying to work. What other questions that I want? Oh, so here we go. One of the other ones that one of the other ones that I want to ask you is about turnover. Typically restaurants have a high level of turnover and not only from the 16 year olds, but shift managers and, and maybe even the middle management. How do you, how do you train and educate ongoing inside of Chick-fil-A in terms of workers' compensation, how to report claims? Is there an onboarding process for new employees that, that you outline that every single time? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, a little bit of redundancy because there, there's a, a very specific onboarding process that goes on, but it's continuous training. It starts with the operators uh, and it goes all the way down. I mean, we do send our operators back to Atlanta, Georgia, to the support center just for refresher courses. And a lot of times they'll bring their senior leaderships, you know, who will then teach the, the rest of their teams as well. And you have to go over the basics. You have to go over sort of just restaurant 101, not even just claims 101, but, but restaurants. And the example I'm going to give you, Todd, you know, for, for anyone who hasn't been aware, our, our dining rooms have been closed for about the last year and a half. So because of COVID and everything, we focus solely on the drive-through, which certainly led to challenges because now all of a sudden our team members who are not used to working outside had hazards of vehicles, curbs, uh, the heat elements, you know, the, the extreme cold, extreme heat. Well, now we're facing the issue of team members working for us who have never had customers in the dining rooms ever before. And it's going back and training them basic, again, restaurant 101, stuff like not using the back of house mop, which is typically gonna be used for cleaning up grease, slick substances, using that in the dining room where guests are gonna be walking back and forth. And one thing we encourage, you know, our team members, they're required, they have to wear slip resistant shoes. Uh, we, we don't budge on that one. But I would argue 0% of our guests will come in wearing slip resistant shoes. You know, a lot of times, especially now in the summer months, they're coming in in, in flip flops and sneakers and, and that sort of thing. And if, if there's a slight bit of grease or oil that was tracked onto the floor, trust me, a guest will find it when they're walking past it. Team member may not because to them they're wearing slip resistant shoes. So again, it's stuff as basic as that. and. Safety is ongoing. Risk control is ongoing. I'm still a firm believer the best claim is the one that never exists. So 
we need to make sure that we focus and, and retrain these team members, what it's like to work in an area. And sometimes it's a building that was maybe designed to do 5 million in sales, but they're actually doing about 11 or 12 million in sales that year. That's a, that's a lot of volume and a lot of fast paced activity. And I know what you mean. I mean, just from back in the days at Arby's cleaning up after the lunch rush, trash outside, people spill ketchup, people spill spop, you know, the, the, the machines in the front, they're slipping fall hazards. There's a million ways to get hurt in a restaurant, not only for the employees, but also for the guests. And you really have to be on guard to make sure that doesn't happen. Cause I guess getting injured is even worse. Yes. 100%. I shouldn't say it, not to say that, <laughs> you know, but usually guests are a little more vocal and negative reviews and a lot of louder talk. If they think you should have done something a little better to prevent their claim experience. And I think it's even more vocal when it's intentional on their part to try and get money. <laughs> that's just personal. That's just personal talk. You don't have to comment. <laughs> well, and you're not protected with the exclusive remedy and workers comp. So that, again, that's a completely different ball of wax. Absolutely. Um, I, I think we're about time here, Steve. What else you want to talk about today? Did we miss yeah. anything? Um, no, I mean, Todd, I just thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. I mean, I can, I can bore you for hours with stories. So I, I just, I appreciate your time today and having me on as your guest. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, I could probably talk to you for another couple hours and we could geek out on stories and <laughs> work comp and all things workers' compensation and the right way to do something. And, uh, all I can tell you listeners out there is I've been an insurance agent for what is it? 17, 18 years now. Sounds like about the same time, Steve, that you've been in your career. Um, I've never done fraud or handle direct workers compensation claims, but it sounds like you've made a positive impact at Chick-fil-A, which is probably once again, why they're so successful and just taking care of your people in that claim process is huge. And I think that if you're a business out there that says, I can't do it, here's a one man shop for Chick-fil-A that did it. I mean, that's what you did, right? Nurse triage, reduce claims, ongoing training, eliminate the burn and cut problem and train for that. And it's just you with a, with a TPA resource behind you where there's yeah. a will, there's a way. Absolutely. And I would encourage anyone out there, talk to your peers, talk to other people in the industry and see what works for them and see what doesn't work for them and why. You never know what could be successful in your program. Absolutely. All righty, Steve, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do so? Yeah, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably about the only social media that I'm on these days, uh, but they can certainly email me, steve.figliolo at cfacorp.com. And I will spell my last name. I was going to say, it's, pronounced, it's spelled just <laughs> like it sounds. <laughs> F-I-G-L-I-U-O-L-O. So, uh, listeners, we'll put his uh, we'll put his contact information in the show notes on our Comp Effect page, also for this show. Uh, Steve, once again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing what you're doing with Chick Fil A, how you made an impact, and uh, just kind of your story, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Todd, thank you again. All right, we're out, everybody. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>